Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Zechariah chapter 13. We're making our way toward the end of this third section in Zechariah and to the end of the book as a whole. We've talked a few times now about the four basic subunits in this final section, running from chapter 9, verse 1, through to the end of chapter 14. The first subunit can be titled The Coming King. That runs from chapter 9, verse 1 through 11.3. The second subunit we've called The Rejected Shepherd. That goes from 11.4 through to 11.17. The third subunit we've called the pierced one. That goes from 12.1 through to 13.9. And then the fourth one can be given the title, The Final Renewal, chapter 14.1 through 21. As such, here in the nine verses of chapter 13, we're still working through the third oracle or subunit of the final section of the book of Zechariah. This unit is all about the pierced one. It is contemplation of this pierced one who is spoken of as God and yet also as one distinct from God that leads to a great renewal and reformation of the people of God. The chapter division is fairly unhelpful here, so I think it would make sense to go back and start this discussion by rereading the end of chapter 12 and then carrying on from there into chapter 13. So I'll start reading at verse 10 of chapter 12 by way of introduction and reminder. Hear now the word of the Lord. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. We talked in the last episode about how this oracle seems to be depicting a time of intense contemplation focused on me, comma, on him whom they have pierced. Well, let's start by just acknowledging that that phrase doesn't exactly roll off the tongue in English. Listen to that again. Verse 1 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, comma, on him whom they have pierced, comma, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. So which is it? Are, are they looking at God and realizing that they have in some sense pierced him? 
Or are they looking at some other person or agent acting on behalf of God and very closely connected to God and realizing that they have pierced him? The sentence seems to be saying both things, but how can that be? Well, of course, if you keep reading the Bible, then you're going to discover how this tension is resolved in the person and work of Christ. In fact, the Apostle John seems to intentionally mimic this tension in the prologue to his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word, which we find out in John 1, 14, refers to Jesus, was in the beginning with God and was God. Well, that sentence also does not naturally roll off the tongue. It feels ungrammatical. And of course, it is supposed to. It is ungrammatical by design. It is supposed to arrest you and cause you to think about what sort of person could be described as God and also as an agent of God. And of course, John wants you to be thinking about Jesus. Only Jesus can be described as God and also as a distinct agent of God. And it is John who connects Jesus explicitly to this ambiguously worded phrase in Zechariah, when Jesus dies for our sins upon the cross. In the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 36 to 37, right after the soldier pierces Jesus' side, John writes, For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Closed quote. So John wants to connect the death of Jesus to two particular passages in the Old Testament. The first one is Exodus 12, 46, which is talking about the Passover lamb. It says, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones, closed quote. By citing that scripture, John is saying that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. If we take shelter under his blood, we can be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. The second scripture cited by John is Zechariah 12.10. By citing that scripture, John is saying that Jesus is the agent of God who may be identified with God and as God, whose death becomes the focal point for all true spiritual life and renewal. Praise the Lord. So coming back to Zechariah, at the end of chapter 12, it seems that the whole world has surrounded the covenant community to make war on her, but the Lord takes the field on her behalf. He first converts people near her from among her initial enemies, who then become her allies and who fight powerfully on her behalf among those trying to destroy her. Then there is an incredible season of spiritual mourning and renewal, encompassing all people within the true house of God. Everyone is focused on Jesus and feeling deeply the weight and significance of sin and understanding truly and transformatively who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross on our behalf. There is general revival and pervasive renewal, touching everyone, men and women at every level and strata of society within the covenant community. That seems to be the picture at the end of chapter 12. Let's jump in now to chapter 13, starting at verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now remember, 
In the last three chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, the most common phrase used is the phrase, on that day. Anthony Pedersen says here that the phrase, on that day, refers to the day when the Lord will establish his kingdom on earth in glory. Closed quote. So these chapters are telling the story of the end. They are the last chapter, if you will, in the great drama of our redemption. Near the end of the redemption story, the church is surrounded by hostile enemies. But right when you expect her to be snuffed out, some of her oppressors are miraculously converted. And they become powerful allies. And there is a great season of repentance and renewal. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened. There shall be an uprising and an outpouring leading to a great leap forward in sanctification, consecration, and power. The fruit of that work begins to be described in verses 2 and following. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. So the two great fruits of this widespread, authentic, and penetrating work of repentance described at the end of chapter 12 and the start of chapter 13 are, first of all, a complete renunciation of idolatry, and then secondly, a complete end of false prophecy within the covenant community. The people of God will achieve clarity and purity in their belief and practice. There are obvious thematic similarities here with the sort of promises we see associated with the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. There we're told, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So, again, we have this sense of clarity and true knowledge associated with the new era. The new era inaugurated at the coming of Christ. But Jesus didn't seem to understand his first coming as putting an end, finally, to the presence of false prophets. In fact, he warned his disciples in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, closed quote. So again, I think that helps us locate this oracle as being associated with his second coming, or rather the times leading up to and immediately preceding his second coming. In that time, on that day, the prophet appears to be foretelling a great revival that results in a final end to idolatry and false prophetism within the covenant community. What a day, glorious day that will be. As a pastor, I can tell you, I'm looking forward to that day because I'm living right now in the reality of Matthew 7, not Zechariah 13. The church continues to be beset with false prophets. They're coming at us right now from the left and from the right. We've been feeding these wolves for 50 years in North American evangelicalism, and now the forest all along the narrow way is overcome with predators. So, I'm ready for this day. Bring it on. 
the prophet sees a total end to this garbage. Thomas McComiskey says here, the prophet has established the certainty of the end of false prophetism among his people. But wishing to underscore that certainty, he pens a hypothetical account that assures the reader that a false prophet will never reappear in restored Israel. Should a lying prophet arise, but none will, his parents will pierce him through. Nothing will stand in the way of the complete elimination of false prophecy, not even an emotion as strong as parental love, closed quote. So something is going to happen, the prophet is saying, that is going to make false prophetism within the covenant community so disgusting, so unthinkable, that if ever it should arise again, which it won't, but if ever it did, even parents would pierce through their own children if it should come from them. That's a pretty powerful picture. He gives us another one in the following paragraph, starting in verse 4. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. So it sounds like even some false prophets are going to be converted in this great revival, and they're going to renounce their former nonsense, and they'll be deeply ashamed of it. They will even try hard to erase all the marks and evidence of their former ministry. The wounds in the back that Zechariah speaks about probably refer to the sort of wounds that were associated with ecstatic prophecy in those days, when prophets would literally whip themselves into a charismatic frenzy. What he's saying is that on the other side of this great renewal, this great outpouring, this great leap forward in the covenant community, former false prophets are going to try and pass off the marks of their former ministry as actually just scars won in a tussle with some friends. Again, this is a rhetorical device. This doesn't actually happen. It's a way of saying that former prophets will be ashamed and will come to look back upon their previous teachings as a source of deep embarrassment. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So this oracle seems to be expressing the resolve of God to move forward with this very costly plan, having reviewed the great benefits and results that it will achieve. It is a costly plan, but it is an effective plan. Therefore, God says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. In essence, God has reviewed the plan. He sees the cost-benefit analysis, and he is firing the starting pistol. He's saying, all right, let's go forward with it. Now, the shepherd in view here is the good shepherd, which we've already been told will be rejected. He is described by God, interestingly, as the man who stands next to me. Well, obviously that is Jesus. That can't be anyone other than Jesus. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says here, this part of verse 7 is quoted by Jesus not long before his arrest. In brackets, they put there Matthew 26, 31, Mark 14, 27. 
and applied to the scattering of the apostles. Again, in brackets, Matthew 25, 56, Mark 14, 50. But the scattering is probably intended to serve as a type of the diaspora, which occurred in AD 70 and following, close quote. I think that is correct. So this paragraph is an expression of God's resolve to go ahead with the plan to send Jesus, the man who stands beside me, to be the good shepherd who will be rejected and killed by his own people, but whose death will unleash forces of renewal and regeneration that will eventually result in the total transformation, not just of the people of Israel, but also of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. Therefore, all that the people will have to go through, this great fire of destruction, exile, wandering, deceit, despair, and confusion, all of that will be worth it in the end. Because in the end, on that day, they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, you are my people, and they will say, you are our God. Praise the Lord. That's an encouraging picture. There's a good end coming. Zechariah says, though I see great suffering, though I see bad choices and horrific consequences, though I see twists and turns and ups and downs, though I see fire and death and destruction, beyond all that, through all of that, I see life. I see repentance. I see renewal. I see understanding. I see faith. I see purity. I see real lasting change. I see blessing for us for our land, for our people, and even for those who previously opposed us. I see all of that coming to us through the suffering and death of our shepherd king. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 